Hello and welcome to Love Thy Lawyer, where we talk to real lawyers about their lives in and out of the practice of law, how they got to be lawyers, and what their experience has been. I'm Lewis Goodman, the host of the show, and yes, I'm a lawyer. Nobody's perfect. Now hearing criminal jury trials and preliminary hearings, he has served as Chief Supervising Judge of Criminal Courts in Alameda County. Prior to his judicial career, he served as a Deputy District Attorney in Alameda County and as the Supervising Deputy for Administration in the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office. As a prosecutor, he handled hundreds of serious gang cases and developed a special gang unit. And perhaps most impressively, he taught history in high school. Mike Gaffey, welcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Well, it's really an honor to have you. What assignment do you have right now? Right now we have, I'm in Department 701 of the East County Hall of Justice, and we're essentially a trial department. And if there isn't a trial in, then we fill in taking preliminary hearings every day or, you know, settling cases, taking pleas, doing whatever motions. How long have you been a judge? I took the bench in February 2005, so just a little bit over... I guess 16 years now. And when were you admitted to practice to practice law? I took the bar in uh, July of 84. I think we were the first uh, group to take the three-day bar. And so when the results came out in November of 84, that's uh, around Thanksgiving. That's when I was sworn in. And I think that's when I first met you. Very well could be. Yeah, I remember you were in the DA's office in those days, and that's where I ended up. Where are you from originally? Well, I was born in San Francisco, and then my dad worked for American President Lines, a, a steamship company. So he was transferred, you know, different places, but, but I was born in the city, and we stayed here for a few years before going to Southern California on a, a new assignment for my dad. Well, I went to high school at uh, St. Francis in La Cunada, California, which is right outside of Pasadena. Before we did that, he, he got transferred to Hong Kong. So we spent a few years in Asia for four years from uh, 64 to 68 and then came back and went to high school and college in L.A. What did you think about living in Asia? Well, that was an interesting time, 64 to 68 in Hong Kong. Of course, Hong Kong was a British crown colony in those days. The Chinese, the Mao was in power in China, and uh, they basically controlled Hong Kong. If they didn't agree to and accede to the, China, the British, they could have walked in there any day of the week and taken over, but it was a cash machine for them. But they controlled the water supply. They controlled the food supply. Without their acquiescence and agreement, Hong Kong would not have existed. During that time, there was a cultural revolution went on in the mainland, and uh, Hong Kong felt the effects because there was a big percentage of the people in Hong Kong were communist sympathizers, and so you'd see big demonstrations of the guys with their Mao hats on and the holding the little red books, and, you know, there'd be waves of people out there. And I can remember my parents taking me out to watch some of these demonstrations because they were demonstrating at the, kind of the American symbol in town was the, the uh, Hilton Hotel, and uh, that was kind of uh, visible from a distance, and we could go and sit on the hill and watch all these demonstrations. And very organized and very, very kind of polite. They didn't break any windows. They didn't do anything in terms of damage, but it was just the show of force that we're here, you know, we're, they controlled a bunch of unions, the communists did. So it was an interesting time to be there. And you're kind of like a witness to history in a way. It wasn't the Cultural Revolution itself, but it was one of the ripples of the Cultural Revolution. So then you came back to uh, Southern California and you went to high school? Sure. Yeah. St. Francis was a uh, Capuchin 
kind of a Franciscan high school, but they're a, a branch of the Franciscans. So I'm four years there and then went to UCLA for two years. So, you know, my class, there was about 100 guys at, that was an all-boys school. And then to go to UCLA where your freshman classes are like 300 people, I was completely overwhelmed. I was a little bit of a fish out of water in such a huge change. After a couple of years, I managed to go to uh, transfer to Loyola, Marymount down in uh, also in L.A., closer to the LAX airport. Did, did you did you find the uh, Loyola experience was uh, sort of fit you better? It did in the sense, I, I think I liked the, UCLA was quarters. Loyola was on semesters. Quarters go by really quickly. And I, I like that. I like that you could take more classes. I like the, the education that I got at UCLA. Freshman year, I had a great history professor, among many great history professors, but I had a really neat kind of a tutorial with about 10 students and this guy who was had written the textbook, but he was, he just had us reading, you know, in English, the Greek Iliad and the Odyssey and Herodotus and all these original sources, which, you know, you don't do that everywhere. It's, it was kind of like a, a great book type of experience there. And then, so I was into a lot of ancient Greece and ancient Roman and then Byzantine history. And then at UC, at Loyola, I seemed to focus more on American history. So I was kind of a history major throughout, but really loved history and continue to love history today. When you graduated from college, did you go directly to law school? No. I When I got out of college, I, I decided to go teach. And through one of my previous teachers when I was in high school was teaching at a uh, high school and junior college. It's run by the Salesians called the Don Bosco Tech in uh, like Rosemead, California, down by the Pomona Freeway in east of East LA. So that is a kind of a school that you go to classes in your academics and then you take a technical degree. So after five years, you can, instead of a four-year high school, after five years, you get a AA degree in, in could be electronics or metallurgy or automotive or HVAC. You know, they, they give you a skill. Yeah. And and you were teaching history? I did teach history and American government and world history. How long did you do that? I stayed at Bosco Tech for two years. And then I had, you know, my mom had been a teacher and she was really in favor of having another teacher in the family. So I, I did that. I had thought about going to law school, but in my mind, it was better to pay off my student debts first and then go to law school than to pick up more debts going to law school. So I taught for two years and then I thought, well, if I teach one more year. So I, I worked as a substitute teacher in a couple of school districts in, the, in that area and did day-to-day sub and then worked like as a guy behind the bar at a little cafe at night. So I'd be up till two in the morning or whatever, and then get up at six in the morning when you get the call and say, hey, go to this junior high or this high school or whatever. So those were uh, fun times when you're in your 20s to do such things. So keeping an order in a courtroom is child's play compared to those jobs. Being a day-to-day sub is a challenge, is a challenge. When did you decide to go to law school and what prompted that decision? Well, I think when I had my debts paid off, then I decided I'd apply. And uh, so I applied to a couple of places. There was a guy in our parish who was a graduate of Notre Dame. He'd been in the, I don't know, the Air Force or something. Then he became a DA in LA County and then he was a commissioner in LA County. He went on to become a uh, Superior Court judge and then became a federal district judge in LA. When I knew him, he was a commissioner and, and I said, hey, I got into like Loyola and Santa Clara, USF and uh, Hastings. What do you think I ought to do? And he said, well, 
I'd go to, you know, you can, you can go there. It's, it's more of a national school. The others are more regional schools. And uh, so, you know, you could pretty much have a good experience at, at Hastings. And he knew that I had family in the Bay Area. My grandparents were all up there and cousins and aunts and uncles and everybody were still in the Bay Area. We were the only ones that left. So it worked out that way. I went to Hastings and, and that was fun. What was your experience at Hastings like? Did you enjoy that? I did enjoy it. You know, you, you kind of think, oh, I got into law school. I must be pretty smart. And then you know, by the end of the first week of law school, I realized there are a lot of people that are really smart, and most of them are smarter than you. So, you know, it, it was, a, I wouldn't say your comeuppance, but it's, it was a kind of a shock to go, wow, these people are really smart. Yeah, that was, that was my take on it, too, when I got to Hastings. I mean, I, 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 you know, I'd always been like one of the smartest kids in the class, and then all of a sudden at Hastings, and like, you know, I'm just yeah. keeping up. Sure. No, it's, it's, but it's nice to know that there are people way smart out there who can be the best doctors and the best uh, dentists and, and all that kind of stuff. And lawyers, too, you know. There's, there's room for everybody to succeed. It's just, uh, you just have to realize you have a certain place and, and that, that's where you belong, you know. Do you think that having taken some time off and been in the working world, teaching, having some real world experience, focused you in terms of your experience in law school? It did make me realize you can't sweat all the all the minutia. You kind of have to focus on what's the... Having had a job, you know, where I, th- I thought teaching was hard because the first year or two, you're teaching material that maybe you haven't had classes in. You, you know, I was teaching... The focus that I had on history didn't... I, I was good in American history, and I was good in the ancient part of the, the history curriculum of world history, but... Some of the more modern things I had to kind of get up to speed on. And so I thought, you know, you have to kind of learn how to gauge your time and where you're going to focus your energy. So I thought I'd learned a little bit in that regard. And that helped me with law school. You've been doing this for a long time, having been a prosecutor and being a judge. What is it that you like about being in the legal field? Well, I actually like going to court every day. Some people do, some people don't. Uh, some, but from when I started as a DA, I just, I knew I did, you know, at, coming out of law school, you know, you don't know everything, but I, I'd like to learn. I'd like to listen. I'd like to go to court and see things that either I'm doing it or somebody's doing it that I can watch them and figure out how it goes. I probably drove my supervisors crazy because I was always asking tons of questions. And, you know, some of them would give you the answers and some of them would say, hey, go look it up and don't bother me. But Well, you know, really one of the things that that in my own life I'm most proud of is that, and I don't know whether I had any, any part of this with you, but when, when you first came in the DA's office, it was you and Kevin Murphy and Pat Barron were kind of assigned to me as law clerks. I've, I've always been very proud of the fact that you and Kevin both got to be superior court judges in Alameda County, and Pat had a very successful career in government in Sacramento. Whatever small part in those careers that I had, it's just really been a matter of pride to me that I w- was there at the beginning. Well, thank you. No, I, you know, it's, I know that I, I learned from Everybody that I, I, I asked everybody questions. I remember watching you in trial when we were in Hayward, the courthouse down there. I remember, you know, when you're, if I was a law clerk, that was probably after I was a law clerk. But yeah, no, it was, it was fantastic. So I take it that uh, you would recommend to someone who is interested in a career in law to pursue it. I would. I would very much so. Yeah. You know, especially I think once, maybe you do get the same amount of inquiries when you're a lawyer, but I think when you're a judge, people kind of seek you out and go, hey, I got a cousin or a niece or a kid that wants to, 
is thinking about this, you know, would you talk to them? What, uh, what, what advice, what, what advice, advice would you give? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of them, you know, they think that they, there's only one way, one kind of law or something. And there's so many different areas of law. There's civil, there's probate, there's criminal, there's family. And within those, then there's, those are just the, the disciplines that the court has to offer. But then there's other things in terms of you could go work for a corporation and just work on contracts. You could do land use. You could do, you know, all kinds of regulatory law. It, it's really, if you, if you have an interest in any one thing, there, there's probably some legal line that relates to that that interest. Yeah, no, I, I agree. What what about, what would you say to an attorney who was thinking about a judicial career? I What would I say about to an attorney thinking about a judicial career? That is, again, I have a, that's hard to say. I think the job is somewhat different now than when I first came in. Obviously, we're all being impacted with COVID. And that's, uh, so we're kind of in a um, stilted situation where we're not able to do everything we want to do. But it, it seems like we get a little bit more pulled into the administrative state as time goes on. Just just in the 15 years that I've been doing this, it seems it was it seemed like there was a lot more flexibility in judges and their ability to handle things certain ways. And just as time goes on, we get a little bit more of this layer of, I, I, other than to call it the administrative state, I don't know what else to say, but that, that, that ties your hands or limits your ability to be flexible. So how does like being on the bench differ from your expectation of it, if it does? Well, I think one one issue is I, th- I find it a little bit more isolating than I, I appreciate it. I think as a practicing lawyer in, in DA's office, whether it was Alameda County or Santa Clara County, you know, you, you can walk down the hall and talk to five or 10 different people in the matter of a half an hour, you know, bounce ideas off them, things like that. All the judges are a little bit more attuned to their assignment and their caseloads. And it's not quite as easy to do those kind of things. So I think you're a little bit more isolated. And I would just warn people about that. If you're really social, it can be a, it can be a little bit of a, a restraint on you. I've had just touches with the experience of judging and that I sat as a, you know, pro temp traffic commissioner, you know, quite a bit really, but I've sat in every seat in that courtroom. I've spent a lot of time as a prosecutor and plenty of time as a defense attorney and getting on the bench and looking at the courtroom from that perspective is just to me, incredibly different. And I'm wondering if that's your experience and if you'd comment on that. It is It is really different. I think having your judicial demeanor is hard, one of the hardest things to learn. It took me, I don't, well, I don't, you know, some might say I haven't learned it yet, but walking in when that courtroom is full before you, before our days of COVID and every seat in that audience is full and you've got to be, it really teaches you to be prepared you got to have everything read. You can't just shoot from the hip in a court like that. You really have to work at being up on your game because, and you have to learn the time when you're going to call certain cases. If I know this case is going to be, this case is going to ring me out. Okay. I'm going to call that as the last one before the morning break. So I got a 15 minute break before I have to, you know, make another decision. All those kind of things you only learn by doing it. And if you, if you've been a calendar deputy in a department, as a DA or a public defender or, or, you know, even if you've just, you know, maybe just you're in private practice and you come in and you watch all these things, 
you get a feel for how those things are. And you, you kind of want to gauge the judges to how to do things. And the, the judge is kind of gauging the, the counsel. It's, having a judicial temperament is a hard thing to uh, be comfortable with in the beginning. I really thought. Well, I think I think having every eye in the courtroom on you is is something that right. that for me anyway. You know, walking into a just a crowded traffic court, I found really scary the first few times I've done it, and I don't think I've ever really gotten used to it. Yeah, it. Well, I think for me, five thirteen was a great experience for me. I don't know that I. You know, we don't do anything perfectly, but. I think for me, it always was, you kind of have to compartmentalize each case. Some attorney may do something that's going to get you a little bit riled up, but you have to let the next attorney and his client know, or her client know, that their case is a different case, and whatever happened with that last case isn't really affecting your judgment in this case. It's hard to do that, but my perspective is a good... The majority of the time, hopefully much higher than just 50%, I was able to do that and still would be able to do that. I think you get a little bit more comfortable with it as time goes on. And But I think that's always my concern is it just each kind of each case, the client and the attorney know you, you know the facts of their case. You know what the issues are in their case. And you're going to make whatever the decision is. You may make it in their favor. You may not. But you're not doing it without due consideration, having read all their papers and you know reviewed the file, knowing knowing what the issues are. And those, that was back in the days when we had paper files. So we were we were sitting there with a whole stack of files on your bench and pulling out whatever it was that you needed to look at. So that's different now that we got these computerized files. Well, since you brought it up, what do you think about the computerized files as a working tool as opposed to the paper files? I, I kind of had to learn it immediately because it was in a calendar that had to I had to know these things. So I learned it. it it's not... I think the younger attorneys or the younger judges, the newer judges probably come from environments where uh, it's more understandable that all these computer systems. I was didn't grow up with computers. I mean, you know, when I applied to law school, you typed up a letter and you sent it off and that was it. Well, you didn't do anything online. You didn't have email. So word processing when I got to law school was a big deal. It's not as easy as having a paper file in front of you, but sometimes the clerk's office would lose the file. Or, or not be able to find it. It's in another department somewhere, and then you'd have no information. You just continue the case. So I think it works to the advantage of being productive in that you have everything there. I remember when the Odyssey first came in a few years ago, and I looked at and I was a little confused by it, but I very quickly realized, and I said to m- many of my colleagues who were upset by it, I said, you know, six months from now, we're not going to know how we lived without this thing. I think I think that's true, but I agree with you in terms of it's often easier to look at a piece of paper, but from kind of an an overall working the system, there's really nothing like these computers. That's true. I, I think we're 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 not going to go back to the buggies and buggy whips. We're going to proceed and, and take advantage of this. Do you think the legal system is fair? Well, I don't think I'd be doing this if I didn't think it was fair. So, yes, I do think it's fair. I, there's there's always injustice everywhere. I mean, throughout history, there's been injustice, I guess is what I mean. No, nothing is perfect, but the sense that you have a right to a trial and you have a right to have 12 people from the community hear the evidence and make a decision, I, I think that's better than 
some countries. So I, I think from the perspective of you have these rights and you, you can, you have, we have certain processes that are in place, not to say that they're always right. We, we know that, but we have to be conscious in trying to make them as right as often as is humanly possible. Let me shift gears here a little bit. What sort of recreational pursuits do you have to kind of keep your sanity when you're... I'd say generally, I like to, to walk. I used to be a bike rider a lot or um, used to jog, but uh, as you get a little bit older, it's easier to walk, I think. And uh, so I walk a fair bit. I try, I try to get in, you know, 10,000 steps a day, but that's not always possible depending on the, what you're doing in court. What kind of things keep you up at night? What kind of things keep me up at night? Well, when the kids are in college and they're, they're you know, going out of state or whatever they're doing, going to private colleges, usually it's how are we going to pay all these bills? But other than that, I'd say as I get older, the thing that I think about is my mortality, you know, or the thought. I mean, I, again, going back to the Greeks, you know, they'd sit around and look at up the stars and they'd uh, think about, well, how did all this happen and what's going on here and and so, and having many years of Catholic education and reading the Bible and all that kind of stuff, you're like, uh, okay, I believe that there is a, this is the beginning of the rest of eternity. And how, what's, what's the shape I'm in if my maker were to call me today? You know, your mortality, wh- where are you going to be? What's, what's the rest of uh, eternity going to be for you? And, and so I think about that, and I think about that for people that I know that are either sick or or passed away, you know, family members. So it's kind of a keeping me up at night. A lot of times you just spend some time thinking about those things and then uh, say some prayers for the people that need it the most, and hopefully you can go back to sleep. Let's say you came into some real money, you know, three or four billion dollars. What, if anything, would you do differently in your life? I probably would. One of the things I, I like doing right now, I've got a little bit more freedom to do right now, is work. Maybe before COVID, I was working with the Missionaries of Charity in San Francisco. I'd go there, and they had some food outlets for a lot of the homeless in San Francisco in different areas, and I'd work there with them. Missionaries of Charity are, you know, Mother Teresa's uh, group of nuns. Right. And then, but then since COVID, I've kind of gotten into a different charity, which is up in the Napa Valley, where there's you got a lot of farm workers who are out of out of jobs, and you got a lot of people that work in the restaurants up there that. Uh, the restaurants are all shut down. So a lot of those people are getting crushed by the, the COVID close down. So there's a charity up there that where we do food distribution every other Friday or every other Saturday. So I go up there and do that. And so if I had a pile of dough, I, some most of it would, would probably make sure your family's taken care of a little bit, but then would try to do things along those lines to help. Uh, there's a lot of things that can be done and I wouldn't have a clue as to how to do them, most of them. But I think some charities like that that are helping local communities would be a good way to go. I would like at some point maybe to get a camper and drive around the country, but, you know, that probably has to wait until I retire. So, of course, if I had all that dough, then that wouldn't be the issue, right? So maybe I could do that too. Well, I mean, I guess that's part of it is, I mean, would you retire? Would you buy a camper? Would you buy a private jet? I mean, you could, I mean, if money just were not an issue. I don't want to separate myself from the rest of humanity. I, I, I don't want a jet. I, I don't want to, you know, I I can get on a plane like anybody else. Now, if the government says you need to do certain things, maybe I would want a jet, but at this point, I, I'm okay. I don't I don't need that. And, you know, getting a camper and going to live at KOA campground every 100 miles or so or every 500 miles, that would be fine with me. I, I wouldn't need to get on a plane. Well, as, as for myself, I I don't need a private jet, but I think I would always 
fly first class because I'm six three and sitting in a coach seat oh, is always uncomfortable. Well, that that would be a good call. Let, let's say you had a magic wand; you could change one thing in the world, legal world or otherwise. What what would that one thing be? Well, right now, if I could uh, change one thing, it would be you know just to get this COVID thing addressed and done with and over with. So we could kind of go back to uh, some sense of normalcy in our return to our lives. What's the one message that you would really like to put out to the world? Do you have some notion of what that might be? Absolutely. Well, I think it would be somebody made the world. It's not here by accident. It's not just a bunch of protons and neutrons and all that stuff banging around. And if we get our heads away from our cell phones and we look up at the stars at night and start thinking those, those questions, why are we here? What are we doing? What is the meaning of life? That would be the message I'd want to get out. I mean, people that believe that we're here for because uh, God made the universe, if he made the universe and he made it for us, he wants us to be good to the universe, be good in the universe, and be with him forever. So that's that's where I'm coming from. I guess that's, you know, there's redemption is always there. We're, we're never perfect. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He expects us to try. I think that was one of Mother Teresa's things. She says, you don't have to, you don't have to do what it is you set out to do. You just have to set out and try to do it, you know? So I think that's the message that everybody needs to hear. Judge Mike Gaffey, thank you so much for joining me today on Love Thy Lawyer. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you for the invitation, Lou. It's uh, always good to talk to you, and I appreciate you taking the time to interview me. That's it for today's episode of Love Thy Lawyer. If you enjoyed listening, please share it with a friend and subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, send me an email. I promise I'll respond. Take a look at our website at lovethylawyer.com where you can find all of our episodes, transcripts, photographs, and information. Thanks as always to my guests who share their wisdom. And to Joel Katz for music, Brian Matheson for technical support, and Tracy Harvey. I'm Lewis Goodman. I don't know that I've answered your question, but I've talked for a few minutes, so I'll shut it off.